five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. I'm Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist. But I am an alumnus of the International Space University, which is also our partner in the podcast. Here's a short message from them. The International Space University, founded in 1987 in Massachusetts, USA, and now headquartered in Strasbourg, France, is the world's premier international space education institution. It is supported by major space agencies and aerospace organizations, ISU offers the Master of Science in Space Studies program at its central campus in Strasbourg. ISU also conducts the highly acclaimed two-month Space Studies program at different host institutions in locations spanning the globe. And more recently implemented the Executive Space Course, the Southern Hemisphere Space Studies program and Commercial Space program. ISU programs are delivered by over 100 ISU faculty members in concert with invited industry and agency experts from institutions around the world. Since its founding 33 years ago, more than 4,800 students and participants from over 100 countries graduated from ISU. Follow us on social media at ISUNet. Our guest on this episode is Mark Kugel, a co-founder and the chief commercial officer of German space startup Yuri, as in Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. Yuri's main mission is to help its client conduct research experiments in microgravity, for example on the International Space Station. Many may now think that flying experiments to the ISS must be incredibly expensive, and I hope one key takeaway from this episode will be that this may no longer be the case. Microgravity research is relevant for a number of fields, for example the life sciences, so that includes biology, medicine, pharmacology and so on, and the material sciences. One of the aspects of space that most excites me is that space technology may provide solutions to problems we have on Earth, often in fields such as the life sciences, where the people working in the field may simply not be aware of the current state of space technology, including the fact that prices to access space have and are continuing to fall significantly. It is precisely one of the objectives of this podcast to get this message out beyond the space community. In this vein, please enjoy my conversation with Mark. So hi, we are here today with Mark Kugel, one of the founders of Yuri. Hi, Mark. Great to have you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Mark, Yuri, that's obviously a great name for a space-related company. However, it doesn't immediately give away what you guys are doing. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Sure. Yeah. So we at Yuri, we enable research in microgravity. So research in microgravity has numerous benefits in the life sciences, for example, Cells grow in three dimensions, which is much more realistic to how they are in human tissue. So you can use them for drug discovery, for disease modeling. The problem is today that research on the ISS, for example, is extremely expensive. Normally, a mission costs about a million, even more. It takes years from your idea to getting it up there 
And it's very, very complex because you need to do a lot of paperwork or logistics with NASA and you don't know which materials you can use. And our mission at URI is to democratize access to microgravity. So we want to make it more affordable, quicker and simpler to get your research or whatever you want to do there. And there's basically three, maybe four things that we bring in terms of innovation to make it happen. And one is, you must imagine today, experiencing on the space station, for example, often these are NASA ESA projects, and the mini lab where your experiment runs, let's say you want to grow cells, has to develop from scratch every time. So that takes one to two years, uh, super expensive. Every material has to be certified. And our innovation is that we use reusable experiment hardware. So we have a portfolio of different modular mini labs the size of maybe two times a smartphone that we can reuse they're already certified and ready to go we also offer all microgravity platforms that means we don't only limit ourselves to the iss but also to suborbital rockets orbital platforms parabolic flights and we even developed our own clinostat which is a microgravity simulation machine on earth the third thing is we offer a complete end-to-end -end service so we take care of everything from the configuration of your experiment from the beginning. So we're developing an online configurator until you get your samples back after splashdown in the Pacific. So really end-to-end, -end, you take care of your science. We take care of the space part. We also started now ride-sharing on ISS missions and also on suborbital missions to bring down costs when researchers can just share. They have the same requirements. We can get ISS missions in less than 100,000 euros in the best case. And our record is from signature to launch in about four months, which is really lightning speed for the industry. So today, from signature to launch, normally you take one to three years. That's a lot of great detail. So taking a step back, some of our listeners are non-technical people. Could you just quickly confirm like, you know, what microgravity is? Because I think sometimes people have a confusion between like terms of zero gravity, weightlessness, and microgravity, which all get thrown around and which are not all exactly the same thing. Sure. So zero gravity is basically the absence of gravity, as we know from the astronauts floating around in the ISS. So technically, the correct term is microgravity, because normally there's always some kind of rest gravity. So it's, it's never zero. And that's why the scientific term is microgravity, although the, the more common term is zero gravity. To explain that maybe a bit better, because most people think, or many people think, that the astronauts in the ISS, they experience microgravity because they are away from Earth's gravity, which of course is not true. So they're just 400 kilometers above the Earth. There's still about 90% of the gravity you would have on Earth here. But the reason why they are in microgravity is because they are in constant freefall. So humans have found a trick to produce microgravity on Earth by producing freefall. Because if you're in freefall, then you also experience the same as you would be out in deep space. And that you could experience, for example, if you're an elevator and the rope snaps, then you would experience a second or two of microgravity before you probably die. But in those last two seconds of your life, you experience really microgravity. And this is really the basics of all the platforms that we call them of microgravity. So there is drop towers, which is a large towers where you drop something and 
basically the same like my elevator example. There we have about nine seconds of microgravity. We have parabolic flights that most of you have probably seen already. So you have an airplane that flies in a parabolic arch and you get about 20 to 25 seconds per parabola in this plane, which is basically in free fall again. One step further would be a suborbital rocket. So you shoot up a rocket like the Blue Origin rockets into space and it falls down again, also in a parabolic trajectory. There you get, depending on your height, between three minutes and 10 minutes. And then if you really want to have long-term microgravity, you have to go into orbit. So basically like a satellite, like the ISS, where you're constantly falling around Earth. So that's physics 101 for <laughs> microgravity. <laughs> Correct. And I suppose we should point out, you don't necessarily have to die in an elevator. Another example is some of these amusement park rides, basically, where free fall is exactly. sim yeah. simulated and you have a few seconds of weightlessness. If we talk about the orbital platforms, I mean, you mentioned the, the most important, the, I guess the best known one already, the ISS which I think you guys are closely cooperating with, and we will go into that. I take it there's other platforms emerging now to do this type of research in, in orbit. Uh, for example, I think uh, Bartolomeo by Airbus and a few others. Can you talk a little bit about the different platforms which are either already available or you expect to have available in the near future? Sure, yeah. So you mentioned already Bartolomeo, which is not really different to the ISS because it's just an extension of the ISS. But let's start from there. So there's also a company called Axiom that received quite some press lately. And we're actually in, in talks about the partnership with them because they will build the first commercial entity that will dock to the ISS. And in the future, one day when the ISS is not in operation anymore, it will be a completely independent space station, also for tourists. Quite exciting. Then one option you would have is the Dragon capsule of SpaceX. Currently, that is used for cargo resupply missions to the ISS, and the capsule docks to the ISS and stays there around 30 days, and then it comes back. This is where we also send up our experiments. And one concept we have is called Science Taxi, where we have our own facility. I will explain the facility maybe in a second. We have our own facility where our experiments are hosted, and that can stay within the Dragon capsule right in those 30 days with the ISS, and then it docks again and falls down. Or not falls down, but re-enters the atmosphere and splashes down in the Pacific. So the Dragon capsule is one thing, but then there's a lot of new orbital platforms that we call free flyers. So free flyers because they're not attached to anything like the ISS. And those free flyers, for example, are the Dream Chaser from Sierra Nevada, which could yeah, fly completely autonomously. I heard Blue Origin is working on a free flyer at the Paris Space Week just a few weeks ago. I met Lockheed Martin, who were planning to build a free flyer. So there's quite some, also Space Tango, for example, plan to build their own free flyer. So there's quite some companies now emerging, building their own orbital platforms. So it's an exciting time, and there will be hopefully many options in the future. Is there any material differences between those platforms? And then another question, if like a lot of these new platforms are coming online, do you see that the prices may fall because there's more supply or do you think there's also going to be like enough demand to match those? That's a very good question. I mean, for us, it would be good if prices fall because we can then choose the most cost-effective partner. In terms of, to answer your first question, technically, there's some differences. So some work more or less like a capsule, like the, the SpaceX Dragon capsule, 
that you launch like a satellite into orbit and that has the ability to re-enter, for example, with the parachute. But then there's also options that could fly or launch and re-enter like an airplane, like the Dream Chaser from Sierra Nevada, for example, that can just land like the space shuttle on a normal runway. There's a very exciting project, uh, one of our partners in New Zealand called Dawn Aerospace. They're building a single-stage plane-rocket hybrid uh, spacecraft that could launch or start from any airport like a normal plane, and then it launches into space, and then it can land again all in a single stage. The version we're launching with them is still suborbital, but the next one is planned to be orbital. And that is very exciting because if they really manage to get a single stage plane to orbit and back, that would massively reduce costs. This is why we are very excited what they're doing. This is why we're, we're partnering with them very early. That would actually be exciting, not only for you guys. I think that'd be exciting for, for the space world in, in general. Now, coming back totally. to some of the things you already mentioned, you already alluded to, I think, at least a couple of key use cases for the types of studies and experiments that people run. I think one was life sciences and the other one, material sciences. Could you just elaborate a uh -huh. couple of minutes maybe on, on each of those and any others which you find really interesting? Sure, sure. So historically, gravity has mostly been done by governments on the ISS and also on some suborbital platforms. And there it was really mainly life sciences and a bit of material science, I would say. So today you can say um, the ISS National Lab, they just uh, published a report about two thirds of the research on the ISS is life science. And this is also where our history comes from, where we come from and where our focus lies which doesn't mean that we don't do other science. But that's why I want to lay the focus on the life science, because I personally think right now there's, there's the biggest potential there. Now, why is space so interesting for life science? I would pick maybe two areas where we believe have the biggest potential in terms of end-user markets. One is cell cultures, and the other thing is microgravity crystal growth. So cell cultures... What do I mean by that? Today, if you want to do any research, any tests on human tissue, on human cells, whether that is for testing a drug or whether it is looking at cancer cells, how they behave, it's very hard to kind of test those cells within humans. You don't want to give cancer cells to living humans, so you test them in a lab. And in the lab on Earth, they usually grow on a Petri dish, but only in two dimensions because of gravity, because the force of gravity pushes them down and would not allow them to grow in three dimensions, which they actually do in the human tissue or human body, of course. So on Earth, people try to build scaffolds to somehow mimic that, but it's never the real thing. And this is already one big advantage. If you grow those cell cultures in microgravity, there's nothing, no force that pushes them down. So you really have nice three-dimensional tissue growth, cell growth. And that is, of course, great if you want to test, again, drugs, if you want to look at cancer cells, how they really behave in a, in a tissue-like um, form. And then you also have some, some minor effects like cell-cell interactions are much more likely than they are in the body, again, because there's no effect like convection, there's no effects that would hinder them or presses them down. So 
for the whole cell culturing topic, it's, it's a huge, huge benefit. And uh, just talking about tissue engineering, just talking about 3D bioprinting, all those fields now coming up already heavily growing, they would benefit from research and in the future even manufacturing in microgravity. One of our partners slash competitors, TechShot, they have now brought uh, the first biomanufacturing facility to the ISS to really do the first tests on bioprinting organs in space. That's extremely exciting. We will see how this develops, but this is where we also see a lot of potential in this whole bioprinting tissue engineering field. And yeah, so cell culturing really has a, a long tail of uh, end user markets in the biotech and the pharma industry where this, this might be helpful. And the second part, as I said, is microgravity crystal growth. Now, this needs a little bit of technical explanation. I'll try to explain it in simple words. And by the way, I'm not a biochemist or I'm by no way any biologist. I just kind of, uh, we dig deep into that industry and find it fascinating. So today, if you develop a drug, what you normally do is you look at proteins. Everyone knows it from biology class. You have proteins in your body that might or it might be their fault that something doesn't work in your body. So to develop a drug, what you want to do is think of the protein as your keyhole, and you want to find a key that fits accurately into that keyhole, because if it kind of fits, if it matches, it could bind with that protein and might help you heal that disease. So what you need is a very accurate picture of that keyhole, of that protein structure. Of course, the protein is, is super, super small. So what the pharma companies do in a process called protein crystallization, they form crystals of that protein. So they make many, many proteins in a crystal form. So it kind of gets into a bigger structure because with that crystal structure, they then find out how that actual protein looks like. And the problem with protein crystallization on Earth is that because of effects of convection, because of gravity, there's impurities in those crystals. And the crystals also don't grow as large as you want them to be. So this is a very tricky and very time-consuming and needs a lot of humans to, to do that process. And it's actually big pain in, in the whole, we say, biologics discovery process of pharma companies or biotech companies. And countless missions on the ISS have shown that protein crystallization actually works much better in microgravity because of the known effects, because there's no convection, no gravity. Crystals, they grow much purer and in better order and in better quality. So if you could really let them grow on a large scale there and then look at them, you could find a much better key because you know the keyhole with much higher accuracy. So that was kind of a deep dive in, into one of the, the topics, really what pharma and biotech could benefit from, but I find it fascinating because it's really on, on kind of the cutting edge uh, part of the process where, where they really struggle today. This is where we see a lot of potential into making that easier for them. What are we for those companies? We are basically their lab in space. So we are basically a contract research organization uh, for the preclinical drug discovery phase. And that's a huge market. And there's today companies that do this research for the pharma companies. And we would basically be in that role. So a pharma company would come with us for, uh, with a problem. I want to you know, look at this protein. And we take care of the whole process 
we develop the lab, we bring them up, we bring them down and kind of do it as a service for them. Thank you for that intro. I, I do agree with you. I think this intersection of space and life sciences and, for example, drug research is hugely exciting. Now, I would intuitively imagine that some of these pharma companies are, you know, relatively, let's say, conservative organizations with respect to having set processes and they're already having to deal with some new technologies coming into these processes, like, you know, for example, using artificial intelligence now for drug discovery. When you talk to the pharma companies, do you find them receptive to the idea of space? Is there a lot of education to be done? How have these conversations been going? There's definitely a lot of education to be done. And it's definitely not that the sales cycles are like two months, but rather maybe 18 months. So it's really a lot of persuading. You need to show a lot of data. And that's the thing that there, although there have been a lot of experience already, it's not on a kind of scientific data level that they're really convinced, okay, this definitely works, let's do it. So you still have to go through the innovation departments and through the kind of innovative minds within the company. So chief scientific officers, chief innovation guys that really kind of are excited about this whole topic, that believe in it. And together with them, you try to persuade the CFO because you get this Chief scientist excited, but you, of course, close the deal through the CFO. That's at least what we heard from many that, that are also in that area. So, yeah, it, it's definitely not easy, but there have been quite some experience already also from a lot of commercial pharma companies. So it's not something totally new. And now you just have to kind of take that next evolution step from the prototyping, let's try this out, to, okay, let's really try this on a larger scale in our research project. And I can't help asking in the context of life sciences about a specific experiment that actually was in quite a few press outlets, I think end of last year, which is uh, some Australian researchers which are working on the effect of microgravity on, I think, four different lines of cancer cells, which I think those guys are doing with Yuri. So could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that exciting experiment? Sure, sure. That is indeed very exciting because it's not only cancer, but it is the first Australian biology ISS mission ever. Um, that, of course, was a, a big press thing in Australia because you have cancer and you have space. And that was a great opportunity to get this very niche topic into the public. And the researcher, Joshua Joe from the University of Technology in Sydney, he was formerly at, at Harvard Medical School and did some, some very interesting cutting-edge cancer research. And he, out of kind of his own interest or his own inspiration he got when he once talked to Stephen Hawking, he thought he wanted to build his own random positioning machine, which is similar to the Kleinostat we're building, which also simulates microgravity on Earth. And there he did a lot of studies and a lot of research, and he found that cancer cells he put into that machine that simulates microgravity die off faster than they would if they weren't in the machine and die faster compared to, to other cell types. And that was quite interesting. And uh, he tried to explain it to me in a way that kind of the tumor or the cancer cells, they thrive if they are together. But if they don't have kind of gravity, they're kind of separated and then uh, they slowly die off. At least that's his preliminary theory for now. And of course, he wants to validate that on uh, the ISS, on, on, on the space station. And I mean, of course, the, the press was huge, but in science, uh, you, of course, need a lot of data. And it's not that he's the first one who sent out cancer cells to the space station. 
So there has been done a lot of research already, of course, and, and some hint into that direction. But still, I think it's a great first step. And uh, we're very excited to see what else will happen with that. When is that mission flying? We will fly that on SpaceX 21. We just heard that it will be postponed from August this year to October. So it was initially planned for August 5th, and I think now it's the end of October. And that's an interesting part, just uh, talking about the flight. That is actually an example for a ride share we did. So it was the UTS Sydney with their own budget. Obviously, they didn't have the funds that NASA or ESA has. What we could offer them is to do a ride share together with a NASA mission we're also doing on that flight. So we could save our travel costs. We could um, kind of share the lab that we're renting anyway there. So there's uh, quite some costs that we can share and make it more affordable for them. So that's, that's a classical example of a ride share I, I talked about in the beginning. And then excellent. So maybe some people are listening to us who are thinking already about running experiments in microgravity um, with you guys. So could you maybe spend a few minutes taking us through step by step how that works from, you know, if somebody has an idea for an experiment that requires microgravity, how does he get in touch with you guys? How do you choose the platform? What are the timelines? How much does it cost the range? How do you get the results back? Sort of a step by step of the typical process. Sure, sure. I would say if you don't have a specific experiment yet, and we have encountered a lot of people and entities that are in that situation that say, hey, well, I see the benefit, I see the excitement, and I have some rough ideas in my head, but I'm not really sure what exactly I want to do. So for these people, we started offering microgravity exploration workshops. So these are one or two day design thinking workshops where we really either at our place or at their place, uh, we have a certified design thinking coach in this case. And we together explore with modern brainstorming techniques with lots of post-its. We bring down what's in their heads of the group into really a specific experiment protocol. And we do that in the end by providing Lego bricks and they build their own experiment hardware with Lego. So after two days, they have a completely finished experiment protocol they want to do, and they have the hardware that they want to fly in terms of features. And that's basically the starting point. Some, of course, already start from there, maybe some that have flown already. So if you're there, the first step in our case, this is what's currently in development for us, but we're developing a online configurator where you basically similar to an airplane search flight engine or any other configurator for your car, you can configure your mission. So there are questions like, how many seconds, minutes, or days of microgravity do you need? What kind of volume do you need? Do you need a CO2 sensor? Do you need real-time data? All those factors. And then it calculates for you a first mission draft, a first mission manifest that could say, okay, you want to fly cells, um, you need this temperature, and you need 30 days. That's why the calculator tells you, you will need this type of hardware, we will fly on this ISS facility, and we will go to the ISS. If it's just five minutes, it might say, okay, we can go on a suborbital flight, and that's, of course, cheaper and quicker. So that's the first step, configure your experiment. And then after we kind of clarify the details and sign the contract, we give you a training on ground with our hardware. So that's either in our lab or in your lab, where we bring you the tools and the experiment mini lab, as said, the size of maybe a smartphone or a cigarette box, where you really get to know 
how to handle it, how to put in your cells or how to put in your plants and whatever type of hardware it is. So really give you an extensive training. And then it's very important that you do extensive training yourself because short before launch, there's no time for training. It needs to be in every kind of neuron in your brain because the times are very stressful there. So you need to practice that a lot of times. And while you train, we prepare all the launch logistics. That means we take care of all the export control settings, shipping those cells to the U.S., for example, to Florida, to Cape Canaveral. We book a slot on the SpaceX capsule, on the rocket that will get up. We book a slot on the facility, on the station. That also depends on your requirements. We can choose any type of facility. And you must imagine what we build is kind of the draw box and what's on the facility is the cupboard. So we have the box and that basically fits on almost all the cupboards, the facilities on the ISS. And depending on what you need, if you need temperature control, if you need a centrifuge, if you need real-time data transmission, we then choose the right facility for your needs. And that differentiates us actually from those competitors that have their own facility because they, of course, try to sell you the features of their facility, even though that might not be the best solution for you. So it might be less than you need, or it might be more than you need. And we can really choose the most cost-effective and most suitable facility for you. So we book that. And then comes the exciting part. We, in most cases, fly together to Cape Canaveral. If it's an ISS mission, we rent a lab, a space life science lab, close to the launch site about two to four weeks before the launch. And this is where you then cultivate your cells or grow your plants or whatever you want to fly. And then short before launch, we will give that to NASA and NASA puts it into the SpaceX capsule. It flies up, the crew, the astronauts take it out and put the experiment, your experiment in our hardware into the facility of our partner. Then it stays there about 30 days and then when the SpaceX capsule comes down again, re-enters the atmosphere, splashes down in the Pacific Ocean, it gets directly shipped, organized by us to you, or it first gets to Houston uh, to a partner, and then he ships it to wherever you are on the globe, and you get your samples back. In most cases, uh, customers get the samples back, because in the life sciences, most researchers want that. They really want to look at the cells, how they look like, how they behave. But we could also just burn them in the atmosphere, so to say. So both options, but yeah, totally depending on, on what we need. And roughly speaking, sort of if one envisioned a not too complicated, not out of the ordinary mission with a cell culture, so like, let's say, a small box, whatever that means, that doesn't require astronaut supervision, what would be the rough price, you'd say, or the all-in price of all of these steps? And if I wanted to get something like that up on the ISS starting today, how soon could the experiment happen, more or less? As I said in the beginning, the cheapest, I would say, that we could get is sending up a 1U box, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters, including three cell culture experiments, including service, including launch, return, sample spec, everything we could offer for about 100,000 euros. If you look at a typical ESA mission that we also fly, that would be 24 of those units. With the, the former example was three. If it's 24 on the centrifuge, for example, it would be more about 1 million. So that's the range, I would say. So low cost possible would be about 100K up to a million or even more. 
And to the time question, as said, normally, if you would have to develop that hardware, if you kind of get all the certifications for your hardware from NASA, it would probably take one to two years. If you said you're ready, you know what you want, we might even be able to get you to the SpaceX 21 launch in October ready because we are we just signed one of the missions that we fly in October last week. So we're not too late yet. If we're quick, we could get it done to a launch this year. Very exciting. And changing tack a little bit, I was really curious about the background of your team and how you found each other and how you came up with this. Because, you know, I think very often when we speak to space entrepreneurs, it's just like something like an obvious story. You know, used to be a rocket scientist at one of the aerospace primes and now is starting his own rocket company. Now, your business model is, is, is very specific at the intersection of space and some of these sciences. How did you guys come up with that and how did you find the rest of the team? Yeah, it's actually similar to what you described. So my three co-founders, they were working at one of the big prime space companies at Airbus. So they worked at quite a few of those. So one of them worked at Ruark in Switzerland and ESA at Deal Air and They worked on Mars rovers, on floating robots for space and those kind of crazy rocket science projects. But in recent years, they actually, they founded an own internal brand at Airbus called Kiwi, where they did life science research on the ISS. And there they had a lot of ideas to improve that process because they saw that it is crazy like it is today that hardware is always developed from scratch, even though the experiments are often quite similar. I mean, if you want to fly cancer cells and the next PI two years later wants to fly cancer cells as well, you probably could use that hardware as well. So there were a lot of ideas that came up during their time at Airbus. So they flew nine ISS missions while at Airbus and always had this idea of maybe founding their own company. And they got some support within the company, within Airbus, and they were allowed to start their own brand and had some special rules. But still, I mean... You all know the, the prime contractors, they're very process-driven and conservative and not very open to those new, crazy, innovative projects. And at some point, they just said, okay, we just take the, the jump and we quit our jobs and let's start it as a completely new company, no strings attached, and offer the service with a lot of new ideas that we have as a completely new company. This was my three co-founders. And it was a completely coincidence because myself, I'm the only one who is not a space engineer, which makes me feel stupid every day, but I can live with it. And we actually met on a startup event. So I was, I had my own startup in a B2C business before. I worked at Rolls-Royce a few years, but I was always looking for, for new business models and new ideas to start a new company. And of course, like most of the, the kids, I was always passionate about space. And so, yeah, we just met randomly on a startup event and it was kind of love at first sight, I would say. And how long ago was that? How, how old is the company? So we met end of 2018. That was when we were all still in our old jobs. And it took about another six months until we founded Yuri as an official company in June 2019. One year old. <laughs> <laughs> You've already achieved a lot, so congratulations on that. What are your kind of key milestones in the near future? And then what would you like this to be in the medium term, say like four or five years out in the future? So for us, the market is divided basically in two areas. So one is the traditional space agency market, where 
NASA, ESA, DLR, Roscosmos, they have their budgets for microgravity missions. It's about, depending on which year you look at, it's about 100 to 140 million a year for those missions. That is, I would say, old space. The good thing is we can benefit from this part of the market because the missions are quite large and we can generate revenue from the beginning. And this is the reason why maybe because we're not even one year old, but from our networking experience, we have won some of those missions, which in our case puts us in a great position that we don't need any business angel funding because we can fund us from agency revenue, really cash flow. And so the first milestones this year is really to close more of those to get the runway to at least another year or so. And to, of course, yeah, have some anchor customers, like I said, we, we signed a mission with NASA. We're short before signing our first ESA mission. And we have now quite some good contacts with JAXA, with Roscosmos, and, and the other agencies. On the short term, definitely the big milestone to close many of those missions. A midterm, or maybe a short to midterm, would be getting new countries to this kind of ISS research or excite them and uh, and persuade them to also be part of that. And so we're talking to countries like, this morning I had a call with the UAE Space Agency, we're talking to Singapore, we're talking to Ethiopia. It's very, very exciting that many countries now found their own space agencies, and of course they, they want to be part of that research community. So that's, I would say, short-term to mid-term to also kind of get them up to space affordably and quickly. And mid to long term really is the commercial market. So that's the second part of this two-sided market, I would say, to really offer first ISS missions to pharma companies like Merck, but in the future to offer microgravity missions on orbital free flyers. This is, I would say, the five to 10-year vision with our science taxi to have a scalable lab as a service model for pharma and biotech companies. Excellent. And another thing I wanted to ask you, so from memory, you guys are located in southern Germany, which I think probably a lot of people don't think of as a traditional space location, you know, like Los Angeles or, or places like that. Although I think you guys are close to Friedrichshafen, which actually is a location with a lot of aerospace heritage. How have you found the, the local ecosystem there? Yeah, actually, it has a lot of history there. So it's not a like big city like Munich or Zurich where yeah you have this, this one big city. But in terms of aerospace, it has a long history. And the reason we're there is actually just Europe's largest integration center is actually in Friedrichshafen. So where they built a huge satellite in a clean room. And of course, because Airbus is there, there's many other smaller companies in the aerospace industry as well. And the history dates back really more than 100 years. So one of the first airplane pioneers that built the first water airplanes and, and those kind of really crazy inventors back then, they all came from that region. The first kind of airship, the Zeppelin, was built there by Graf Zeppelin, the Hindenburg and, and those kind of. So it's, it's a great historical site, but it's not yet a great startup hub, I would say. It's building up. That's also part of my personal motivation to grow the startup scene there. And there's more and more coming up. But in terms of aerospace, it's actually not bad. And Mark, we always end these uh, interviews on two questions. The first one being, if you weren't doing what you're doing, which is a microgravity uh, jury, but you were to do something else in space, what would it be? What do you find exciting? 
probably on, on the launch side. I just love those stories from, from SpaceX in the early days when they went to that Pacific island and they didn't even have money to build a road. So they had to carry a rocket to the launch site and just launch tests and now seeing it with Starship again. So I would probably, I don't know, knock on ESA Aerospace, which are you know, just around the corner in Munich, very exciting company. While SpaceX is doing their launch tests on farms in Boca Chica in Texas, they're actually doing their launch tests on Bavaria farms, which is super cool. So probably, yeah, on I would somehow look into that area more just because it's very exciting and very loud and very explosive. I'm imagining a lot of very traumatized uh, cows on Bavarian farms right now. Exactly, yeah. There's traumatized cows in Texas and in Bavaria right now because of all those tests. And the other question which we always ask because it's so related to space is about science fiction. Are you a science fiction fan? And if yes, what are your favorite books or movies or TV series? I'm a big science fiction fan if it's not so far ahead in the future. That means mostly like in our solar system, I would say. I'm a huge Mars fan. Anything I can recommend is the blog Wait But Why. And if you know that, um, it's a great blogger, Tim Urban, that writes extremely well about very complex, exciting topics. And he's so good that Elon Musk's secretary called him one day to ask him to write a feature about SpaceX and Tesla and all those topics. And this feature, how and why SpaceX will colonize Mars, is one of the best and most exciting things I've ever read because he breaks it really down in easy to understand sections. And after you read that, it's really life-changing. So waitbutwhy.com can only recommend it and the part about the Mars mission. And, and that's why I'm super excited about Mars. I'm very, very convinced that we need to go there to have kind of a backup planet if we screw up this one. And therefore, of course, I'm, I'm excited about all the, the Mars science fiction series like The Martian, the National Geographic series about Mars, which is very well done, I, I would say. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a Mars guy. <laughs> Are you a fan of The Expanse on TV? Yeah, yeah. You'll be happy to hear that. I think even the episode right before you or after you will be our interview with Cass Anvo, who, of course, plays Alex Kamal, the, the pilot on The Expanse. Oh, wow. That's cool. So you're in good company. Mark, thank you so <laughs> much for doing this interview. I wish you good luck at Jury and in general. Thank you. Speak soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or are interested in being a sponsor, or really anything else, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. That's it. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode. <music>